the very reasons why uh, we are not having breakthrough is because I mean, what we are having right now, we want it to be different. You know, this, this feeling that uh, what I have right now, I wish this can be different. This is the, you know, um, the one of the fundamental, you know, cause of human suffering. If you can uh, just sit and really super quiet and 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 accept fully, you know, what is you know, right now, then you realize that you know what is right now is mystery. You know, it is something that you don't know. In this, you know, infinite um, stillness, there is no words, there is no separations, and yet you are aware of that, you know, stillness. You are aware that um, it's vastly empty, uh, luminous, quiet, uh, this aloneness, you know? And then uh, you realize that it's, it is the very emptiness, this vast silence that knows you are that silence. Heyman Sinim was born in South Korea. But after high school, he moved to the United States to study film at UC Berkeley. Dissatisfied with the reality of filmmaking, he switched to religious studies and went on to complete a master's at Harvard, a doctorate at Princeton, and taught Asian religions at Hampshire College in Massachusetts for seven years. At 25, Heyman decided to become a monk and completed his formal monastic training at Heian Monastery in South Korea. His first book, Things You Can See Only When You Slow Down, has been translated into over 35 different languages and sold over 4 million copies. His second book, Love for Imperfect Things, was the number one bestseller of the year in South Korea in 2016 and became available in multiple languages in 2019. Heyman Sinim is the founding teacher of the School for Broken Hearts in Seoul, South Korea, and you can follow him on Twitter with a million other people who seek out his daily reflections. You are listening to Sit, Breathe, Bow, a podcast for practitioners. Each week, leading Buddhist teachers share life experiences and insights to help guide your meditation practice, as well as your life off the cushion. I'm your host, Ian White-Marr. This podcast is sponsored by the Quantum Online Sangha, a virtual Zen practice community for the International Quantum School of Zen. Members of the online Sangha meditate together, study with teachers, and participate in workshops and courses to develop their practice. We have launched a study group for people interested in gaining a deeper understanding of the sutras and scriptures most important to the Zen tradition. And listeners of Sit, Breathe, Bow are able to try a month for only $7 by using the promo code SBB when you sign up. To find out more, visit quantumzenonline.org slash studygroup. So, Sanim, it's great to have you on the show. I'm really excited about this. And, and part of it is, uh, you know, we both went to Harvard Divinity School. Uh, we both practice in a Korean Zen uh, tradition. Uh, are you part of the larger Choge order, or where do you sit in the, in the sort of matrix of, of Zen practice or Sun practice? Yes, I am part of the Choge order. 
which is the largest uh, one in Korea, you know, um, and and so uh, it was sort of like my natural uh, path, I guess. Um, and I met my teacher, uh, who also happened to be, uh, you know, you know uh, in Joge order. So that's how I became a monk. And were you raised in a Buddhist family, or was this just something that you came to through your studies? Oh, my parents were not religious, mm -hmm. you know. Um, but I was very, um, I guess, I wanted to know why I was thrown into this world. And um, I wanted to know who am I and what's the bigger, you know, purpose. You know, all that kinds of big questions ever since I was uh, very young, actually. So my parents had a you know difficult time understanding you know their son, <laughs> um, but nowadays you know because I became uh, you know a Buddhist teacher, uh, my parents are super interested in Buddhism and they do listen to uh, a lots of other you know wonderful teachers' teachings. Uh, so I'm very happy about that. I think a lot of people. Well, they perhaps have the idea that Korea is a, a Buddhist country, but it's really quite Christian. Um, and so just curious about how Buddhism really grabbed your attention rather than Christianity. Because you must have been surrounded by a lot of Christian friends. and Yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, the, the Korea, um, I would say uh, half of the Korean population they do not declare any religious affiliation. And then among the other half, mm. uh, one-third um, Protestant, one-third Catholic, one-third Buddhist. Um, so yes, um, there are more Christians than Buddhists nowadays. Uh, but for me, um, I was attracted to Buddhism because I could actually experience the truth. I don't have to you know, blindly mm -hmm. believe in something. Um, and I wanted to, you know, see, you know, see for myself, <laughs> so to speak. So, um, and, you know, when I was, um, like a 14 or 15, I came across this book called, um, uh, it's one of the teachings from, uh, by Krishnamurti, you know, Jidu Krishnamurti. And yeah. then, you know, I remember, you know, standing in a bookstore and browsing through his book and I didn't understand what he was saying at all, you know, <laughs> and then, but there was a one sentence that really, really grabbed my attention. That was uh, true freedom is from, uh, true freedom means freedom from your own thoughts or freedom from the known. You know, I, to yeah. me, that was really, really shocking because, uh, you know, freedom, you know, at that time meant, you know, you get to do whatever you want to do, you know. Um, right. But, uh, it, and also at that time, Korea was going through uh, political, um, like a turmoil. So uh, like a liberation, freedom, it all meant, um, you know, freedom from the authoritarian governments and all that. But uh, here we are, you know, we have this wonderful book. Uh, it talks about the inner freedom. Um, and then, so I was very curious, you know, what does it mean by being free from the known, you know? Um, so that was the entryway for me to become, 
you know, more and more interested in this spiritual um, spirituality. It's funny. I was just working this morning with a Krishnamurti quote where he talks about how violence actually occurs when we start splitting the world into all of these divisions. Like how that starts, that's the first step of violence. And if we want to see an end to that violence, actually we have to see through, we have to come back to the the path that leads us into non-duality. Right, right. I mean, it's it's so profound. Um, like any kind of, you know, identification you make with any conceptual thing, you know, it can be, you know, identifying yourself with your um, nation, race, gender, mm-hmm. you know, what have you, uh, that splits, you know, they, that becomes the very hidden seed for um, like a violence, you know. Uh, you begin to see, you know, subject versus object uh, as you are defining yourself, you know, with uh, certain terms, certain identity. So um, I guess if you can only walk into, in this realm of unknowingness, you know, what, uh, you know, the great, you know, teacher, Sung San Sinim said, uh, don't know mine. That's what the real mystery, that's where you see um, the subject and object distinction disappears. And just, I'm just curious. Uh, in the, I don't know how much Sung San brought over from the Choge Order, which of course he was a part of. Uh, what, what, what is the in place of don't know mind? What do people in in Choge's say about that? Well, well I think the Sung San Sinim actually, you know, came out of very much traditional Korean traditions. Um, so uh, when he was speaking those teachings, when he was giving that teachings, um, most Korean Buddhist monks, we didn't see that anything um, particularly different. <laughs> so so um, it was very much well accepted, you know, that we all see that, saw that as, oh, that's a great teaching by a great master, you know? So, um, yeah, that's how I take it too. It's it's so funny. Right now I'm leading, you know, because we're in quarantine, so I'm leading a meditation in the morning and at night. And then after it, I do uh, a reading out of uh, Sosan's mm-hmm. Mirror of Zen, which is about 500 years old. And, <laughs> man, it's so wild because there's certain passages where I'm like, this is, <laughs> this is directly, Sung San would say the same thing. It was really funny. Like how consistent the tradition has been in a lot right, of ways. Right, right. And um, you know, as I get older and as I you know get to learn about other traditions as well, I feel very much humble to say that um, there are many you know wonderful teaching, uh, very similar mm-hmm. to uh, Zen traditions. Uh, they are formatted in a different fashion in a different traditions. Uh, they they might talk right. about God and they might talk about you know different language. Uh, however, in essence, they are practically you know talking about the very similar you know awakening experience. So one one place I'd love to to explore, you know, Desansni. I think in a lot of ways, when he was in the United States, the 
degree to which he had success, I think, was because he was able to interpret some of these traditional teachings in a way that was approachable for a new audience. And when I look at what you're doing, it also feels very similar. You, you've had these incredibly popular books. It's sort of rooted in something that's older. And so do you see yourself as being an interpreter for a tradition or is this, uh, are the, are your books there to kind of help people enter the path because maybe they're intimidated by a concept like emptiness or how, how do you see, how do you see your role as a teacher? Mm, oh, very good questions. I think the most challenging part is how to write a easy book, you know, for a beginner. I think that is the most difficult, you know, challenge. It's much, much easier to talk about non-duality and talk about, you know, Buddha mind to uh, right. you know, practitioners. Uh, but uh, when I have to explain, you know, you know, spiritual side, uh, some of the teaching that I wanted to share with, um, some people, they have no clue, you know, they have no interest in spiritual life, uh, but they are uh, having a hard time, you know, managing day-to-day -day stress, you know, uh, they are having right. a hard time, you know, having the relationship issues, uh, you have a really terrible boss, you know, you don't know what to do, you know. So um, I began to offer, you know, different advice. Uh, you know, as I was offering different, you know, kinds of advice, that gave me some kind of insights. Uh, and I begin to see some of the patterns of human uh, conundrums, you know. So, uh, so as I was, you know, exchanging different ideas and try to help as much as I can uh, over Twitter or Facebook and whatnot, um, then I got some idea that maybe I can write about these things, you know, and turn it into a book, uh, which I did. And then it became uh, hugely and successful, uh, you know, initially from Korea, and then it became available, uh, you know, in multiple languages. And what do you think that it was about your book that made it so, so resonant for people? Right before writing that book, you know, I would say like six months, you know, I had some Zen breakthrough. Um, mm. And um, and then so so the the very much my writing, you know, came out of that Zen, you know, breakthrough, you know. Uh, so I felt like I don't know how to I don't know what to say. Just uh, I felt something beyond me you know it, it, it came out of you know uh, it, it, sort of my ego like a very hardened ego it was shattered and i could see you know much bigger um i, I was able to gain much bigger insight and then from that insight you know i you know wrote this book and so i think somehow that uh experience sort of bless this book i have no idea you know i don't know how else i can explain this because because i never ever imagined this book to be this much successful yeah it's a, such a wildly 
wildly successful book. There's a a quality to you that I've noticed that you you tell stories that are in in a lot of ways very sort of self-effacing or very humble. And I, I don't take that in a in a false way. But also, like for me, when I hear it, it seems to grant me a lot of space to enter into the story with you. And I think there's a little bit of frustration sometimes I have with teachers who um, just sort of give a more didactic answer. And I'm wondering if that's something that you've learned over the years. Have you? I mean, you've just dealt with so many people now that your teaching style has come from this very personal place or if that maybe that just came naturally to you i don't <laughs> well I, I, thank you you know <laughs> so, um i i don't know you know this is who i am uh i don't pretend to be um all-knowing you know authoritative you know teacher uh, I, I don't feel yeah. that way about myself at all uh, I struggle, you know, just as, as anybody else. Um, and I often say that uh, the, the gap between what we are, what we know, and how we behave, if we can close that gap, then you can say you are a true, you know, Zen master. <laughs> but I see, you know, huge gap between the two. So, <laughs> and then I talk about it. You know, and, and, right. and my second book, Love for Imperfect Things, was precisely you know, about that. That is, uh, we are all striving, you know, towards perfections. You know, you want to become uh, perfect, you know, Buddhahood. You want to arrive at perfect Buddhahood and all that. Uh, but then uh, you realize that, you know, acceptance of, you know, what it is, is, you know, is a road to Buddhahood. You know. Yeah, that was exactly what I was thinking about. You were, you were telling these stories about your encounters with. <laughs> With imperfection along the way, that made the the teaching really helpful. It's you know I think students are it's a curious situation right because we come to engage with a teacher who you know we're hoping has more wisdom than we do, and then we also do this thing where we put them in a place that is almost it's almost inappropriate what we do to the teachers in the sense of we we create a mental space for them that they can't live into. And then we're surprised when they're imperfect. Right. So, you know, I, I tell them, you know, I tell some of my friends uh, or followers, if you want to venerate your teacher, make sure that, you know, uh, there is a certain distance between you and your teacher. You know, <laughs> if you have a, if you get to see everyday activity that your teacher is doing, surely you'll be, you know, hugely disappointed. So, uh, you know, I remember, uh, I don't know whether it was Zach Confield or, you know, uh, one of the great American teachers, he went to, uh, you know, the retreat. Uh, he spent years and years in Thailand, had a wonderful meditative experience, and he came back to uh, Massachusetts. And then uh, within a week, you know, he was struggling, you know, with his uh, girlfriend or something. So uh, that's, you know, that's where the... The genuine test is, you know, uh, if you if you are if you have wonderful awakening experience, and then how does that translate into day to day 
uh, activity, day-to-day life. Who cares about the cushion ultimately? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's the kindness, you know, in your heart, <laughs> and how much you are accepting yourself and others. Yeah. So, if you can, can you tell a little bit about the school of of a uh, school for broken hearts mm-hmm. that you created? And it seems that it has come out of this out of this kindness. Oh uh, yeah, I tried to, you know. So what happened was that um uh you know, I felt a little bit frustrated with the sort of traditional Korean Buddhist temples in Korea. Uh it is very much, you know, prayer oriented, uh separate from the sort of down to earth kind of problems, everyday problems. And uh, if you have any kind of concrete, you know, like let's say um, you don't you don't get along with your um, boss, or you know you just had a divorce, you know, uh, and then you were to go to Buddhist temple and you know uh, open your heart and talk about this to your um, monks or nun, and and they don't know what to do with this, you know. <laughs> so um, you know I have to create some space where, uh, regardless of your religion, if you can just come to. A, uh, the school, you know, and then talk about your uh, concerns. So, um, I, you know, I had a sabbatical um, 2011 or something. And then while I was in uh, Seoul National University, I start uh, having sort of informal meeting with people, mm. you know. So it started with like a 60 people and then it just grew. And, and then it, it became like 400 people showing uh-huh. up for that group. So then I realized that um, I just gave them opportunity to talk about, you know, what's troubling them, you know. Uh, they really, really loved it. And, and I realized that um, maybe I can do this. So what I did was I invited, you know, people going through a similar difficulty. Uh, like one of the earliest one was that, uh, the, you know, mother who are raising a child with disability for example, and I invite them. And then I remember like 40 people came. And so, uh, I, you know, I offer uh, just a very loving, uh, you know, space where they can just talk about uh, their problems and and try to give them uh, support. And which was, a, and, that, and that was a really, really magical because I remember, you know, one of the mom, um, she was contemplating, you know, uh, taking her baby together and then jump off uh, from her apartment, mm. you know, because she just found out that uh, her baby uh, has some, um, you know, illness, uh, has some disabilities. And then she could not imagine, uh, you know, what kind of pain, you know, he has to go through in the future. Uh, however, uh, there were other moms, you know, raising a ch- children with, you know, uh, I mean, they are much older. So some, but some, some of them were able to offer her. I've been there, you know, I went through that difficulties. Uh, but you, there are so many different resources you can actually uh, use to be able to, you know, uh, raise your children uh, without much difficulty. So. Uh, it was very touching for me to see that, uh, you know, peoples are very much willing to, you know, help each other and support each other if I was offering that space. So um, 
at that moment, I realized that okay, I'm I can just become uh, full time uh, nonprofit, you know, person, and uh, rather than being a you know academics, you know, being a professor. So I quit uh, my job wow, <laughs> uh, as a professor, and then, and then you know I went to Korea and and started this you know uh, nonprofit organizations, uh, and it, it has been great. You know we are serving uh, three thousand people per year, uh, and then now we have fifty different you know uh, counselors and you know teachers. Uh, we offer not only meditation but also all sorts of different programs. Um, yeah. And I, I feel like one of the things that's lacking so much is, or what people want so much is just someone to listen to them. But we've become a culture or a set of cultures that just doesn't actually have time to listen, or maybe we're so desperate to be, to you know, to have someone listen to us. We don't have time to listen to other people. Yeah, yeah. I think one of the reasons why we cannot listen is because we are too preoccupied. <laughs> and uh, living in this modern society, it is very much, you know, goal oriented, and it's about efficiency. You know, you have to get things done. Uh, you have to support yourself. You have to work very hard. Um, so it can be very, you know, stressful. But uh, but if you want to be, you know, happier, you know, more content, um, I think if you can just slow down, you begin to uh, witness the wonder of the universe, the wonder of the flowers, you know, wonders of, you know, your your child's smile, you know, uh, the beauty of, you know, Mozart, you know, like it's all around us. You just have to pause and then uh, appreciate. You seem to have had, and I think this is true for like a lot of the, for a lot of teachers, there's been this compelling drive. You know, you did all of these steps because there was this question that just kept driving you. And because this is a, a, a show about practice and people, you know, people who listen to it, I think, you know, maybe some people don't practice, but I think a lot of them really do. And so they're living with this, with this question themselves, like why, you know, what am I doing all this practice for? What, what sort of, what guidance do you have for them in terms of how to address this question or nurture it or? Well, if I were, if I could just, go back like a 20 years ago or 30 years ago and then I meet myself and then what kind of advice would I give to myself? Like, um, or, you know, anybody who are just uh, practicing uh, and they began, began practicing and yet haven't had any kind of major breakthrough experience, uh, what can you do, you know? Um, like the, <laughs> the, <laughs> um, I realized that uh, back in 2011 or 2010, you know, when I had that experience, um, it was very, very funny because I couldn't stop laughing. You know, the reason why I couldn't stop laughing was uh, the, the, the very thing that I was looking for was um, 
has always always been right here, you know, in front of me. You know, uh, it wasn't anything mysterious. Uh, it wasn't uh, a special, you know, myst- you know, mystical experience. Rather, it is the very awareness, you know, through which I am looking out, and, and I, I am, you know, I listen. Um, right. So I, I often say that it is just like. Uh, you are in uh, New York City, like Grand Central Station, and asking people, you know, how how can I get to New York? You know, and the very reasons why uh, we are not having breakthrough is because we are still seeking. You know, we are still, you know, hoping that somehow this what we are having right now uh, isn't I mean, what we are having right now. Uh, we want it to be different. You know, this this feeling that uh, what I have right now, I wish this can be different. This is the, you know, um, the one of the fundamental, you know, cause of human suffering. Um, so if you can uh, just sit and really super quiet and 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 accept fully, you know, what is you know, right now then you realize that, you know, what is right now is mystery, you know? It is something that you don't know. In this, you know, infinite um, stillness, there is no words, there is no separations, and yet you are aware of that, you know, stillness. You are aware that um, it's vastly empty, uh, luminous, quiet. Uh, this aloneness, you know. Uh, however, the fact that you are aware, you know, of this, and then you can ask, you know, what is that which is aware of this, you know? You know, that's the real wadu, that's the real koan, you know? What is that which is aware of this vast emptiness, vast, you know, stillness, uh, without any thoughts, you know? And then uh, you realize that it's, it is the very emptiness this vast silence that knows you are that silence. You are that vast emptiness, you know? And, and then in, in later you, you will begin to see that uh, actually um, anything that's within the silence <laughs> or within that uh, empty, you know, vast empty, your original mind, um, it can have a multiple, you know, multitude of, you know, different objects. Uh, but all those objects are coming out of that, you know, original mind, you know, coming out of that vast stillness. Um, I remember, um, like, back in 2009, you know, or 2010, I was, like, practicing very hard. And then I went to one of my teachers uh, in Bongamsa uh, in Korea. And then I told him, you know, I talked about my own experience. And then uh, he asked me, um, do you know how to chant? And I said, yes, of course I know how to chant. And then <laughs> he said, that, oh, what kind of chant do you do? I said, oh, I do nam, um, the Namu Yaksa Yorebu, which is the medicine Buddha, you know, so Namu Yaksa Yorebu, you know, something like that. And then uh, he said that, you know, just look at your own mind and and try to observe where the the first word na 
is coming from, you know? It, can you see the, any hole in your mind? Can you discover that hole in your mind that sound is coming out of, you know? So uh, after listening to his instructions, you know, I, I was in my bus, you know, going back to Seoul. And I was just chanting, you know, like three hours straight, you know, try to find that, you know, hole, you know, within my mind, that sound is coming out of. And then uh, after a while, you know, I became tired. So I just relaxed. And then I remember there were like two women, you know, talking behind me. You know, they were like sitting there talking about something. And yet I realized that those voices, you know, it's, it's coming out of exact same hole, you know exact same mind so i realized that all sound was coming out of this exact same vast stillness uh which was just amazing experience so uh any sound or any you know any object that you see uh, it is uh, made of your own awareness and and you are also um perceiving it you know, through your own awareness. Thank you for listening to this episode of Sit, Breathe, Bow. I hope you found the conversation with Heyman Sunim encouraging and helpful for your practice. You can find out more by visiting his website, heymansunim.com, that is H-A-E-M-I-N-S-U-N-I-M.com, Or you can visit the show page where I've included all of the links to his books, to his webpage, and to his Twitter handle. A special thanks to our sponsor, the Quantum Online Sangha. Listeners of Sit, Breathe, Bow are able to try a month of the Zen Study Group for only $7 when using the promo code SBB. The study group offers a close reading of the sutras and scriptures most important to the Zen tradition. To find out more, visit quantumzenonline.org slash studygroup. And don't forget to use the promo code SBB when you check out. And please consider subscribing and leaving a review of this podcast. It helps introduce us to new listeners. I'm your host, Ian White-Marr, and I hope you'll join me again next week.